Welcome to Media Business on the Michigan Business Network. I'm Tony Conley. Thanks so much for tuning in. One of my favorite guests to have on is Patrick DeHaan from GasBuddy.com. He is so entrenched in knowing what's going on with the petroleum industry. Patrick, how are you? Glad to be here and good to be with you. All right, Patrick, appreciate your time. I read a recent tweet of yours that said gas prices will go up every spring starting in late February to March. This is about the most normal thing ever and is based on demand starting to rise and transitions to lower RVP fuels. Every year we forecast every spring sees rising prices, but yay elections. What did you mean by that tweet? Well, Tony, there's a lot of folks out there that subscribe to the belief that somehow elections drive prices up or down. I mean, I guess there could be election theoretically, you know, spring, fall and every season, right? Here in Chicago, we have a mayor election in the spring or actually in March. People look at, I think, the price of gasoline and they have to tie it to the things that maybe they understand. But gas prices, they don't really care about elections. They don't care so much about holidays. That's why prices went down over Thanksgiving. That's why they're falling in the run up to Christmas. What really matters is that seasonal changes affect prices. Gasoline demand is falling right now. That's why prices are falling. And guess what? After a long winter, Americans are going to want to have some time outside. We're going to eat cabin fever and we're going to hit the road in March, April and May. And we also transition to more expensive gasoline. So much of this world is really very much cyclical. And that's why prices go up in the spring and fall in the fall and really has nothing to do with elections. And let's do Patrick DeHaan Petroleum 101. What really causes prices to go up and down? And how are prices set, Patrick? Well, they go up and down based on changes to supply and demand. It could be something like demand in China plummeting, which is the case now. Demand in China is plummeting because of COVID lockdowns. Just like demand plummeted here in the United States during our COVID lockdowns, that can force prices down. On the supply side, there are things like the EU sanctioning Russia and the EU setting a price cap on Russian oil. Those can have issues on the supply side because... In this instance, Russia has said it may stop exporting oil to these countries that participate. So basically any impact, Tony, on either the supply side or demand side can have an impact, whether it's refining or COVID in China or the U.S. economy. Prices are set by a balance, a mashup of all of those factors at the same time. When we talk about American oil companies, how much of an influence does leadership at those companies have on the price of petroleum products? Really none. You know, go back to COVID in 2020, oil companies would have never wanted to lose money on every barrel they produced, on every gallon they sold, right? Oil companies would never inflict a gunshot wound on themselves. And that's exactly what happened in 2020. So Oil companies are subject to the global supply and demand whims. They can change at a moment's notice. Sometimes oil companies don't benefit. Sometimes they do. But that also doesn't mean that they have a hand in setting prices. They're really forced to take whatever price the market determines. Patrick, it seems like we in the media have really dropped the ball when it comes to getting true and factual information out about oil prices and how things work and how they operate. You know, I think there's a lot of people, too, that, you know, may think that, you know, they're experts in a given field. And so the information out there, I mean, you look at some in the media, Tony, that call themselves experts and they say we're going to run out of diesel by Thanksgiving. And you can't help but those people are skeptical, probably skeptical of what I'm saying, because 
They don't know who to listen to. I wanted to ask you about our oil reserves. They're at a point where they haven't been in quite a while. What's that mean? I know that when we go to refill those, if we do, Patrick, we're not going to get the cheap prices we got when they were stockpiled as much as they were. What's your take on that? Well, the reserve is still closer to full than it is empty. A lot of Americans say, oh, it's depleted. You know, we're opening ourselves up for risk. We are. But there's also the risk that high oil prices, if they were allowed to continue, would sink the U.S. economy. So, you know, pick your poison. There's still plenty of oil in the SPR, 385 million barrels or so. The U.S. consumes uh, about 5 to 7 million barrels of imported oil every day. So we're still talking about a longer period of time of oil left in the SPR. I'm sure the president will fill it. They sold that oil when it was $100, $120, $130 a barrel. Now the plan is to buy it when oil prices have gone down, as they now have, right? Oil is $75 a barrel. That's a lot less than some of these agreements. For example, you probably heard that the SPR was partially sold to China. That's true. It was also sold to China in 2017 as well. The price they sold it in June was $125 a barrel. And now the price is 75. So the government sells it at 125 and buys it at 70. That's a lot better deal. But the president has said that he's not going to refill it really until 60 or $65 a barrel or so. I'm sure we'll refill it. And that also gives oil companies some level of certainty that there won't be a crash in the price of oil. So it's helpful for them to kind of plan and increase production. We're talking with Patrick DeHaan from GasBuddy.com. When we come back, we're going to talk with Patrick about clean oil. Whose is the cleanest and why? We'll do that next on Media Business on the Michigan Business Network. Sonair has been advancing communities and providing opportunities for people in Michigan for more than 25 years. Through lending, investments, and the creation of homes and jobs, Sonair has made a combined $7 billion impact on the communities they serve. Learn more at www.sonair.com. Welcome back to Media Business on the Michigan Business Network. I'm Tony Conley. We're talking with GasBuddy.com's Patrick DeHaan. Patrick, if I've learned anything from you, I've learned that when the United States produces oil, when our American companies produce oil, it's the cleanest in the world. Talk a little bit about why that is and compare the oil that we produce versus what they do in Venezuela, Russia, and other places. Well, Tony, it really varies. The crude oil quality, what you're talking about, how clean it is, how much work it takes to refine it. Many countries have more than one type of crude oil that they sell. Canada has heavy oil, predominantly is heavy oil. You would probably think that Canadian oil may be some of the cleanest because it's a yeah, developed what, country. What's heavy oil, Patrick? Just like going in an auto parts store, Tony, when you see various weights of oil. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. Every oil globally may be different. Some are just okay. heavier weights than others. They may produce okay. more heavy products. Canadian oil produces more heavy product like diesel, bunker oil, marine oil, which are all very, very heavy. The problem with a lot of these heavy oils, Tony, is they may be saturated with sulfur and other contaminants that have to be removed. So actually, a lot of that Canadian oil is extremely dirty. It's also trapped in tar sands. So it's very energy intensive to extract that oil. So actually, many Americans may be surprised, but Canadian oil generally is, you know, rated on a scale, the amount of work 
to take all of the contaminants out and then to extract that from the tar sands. It's extremely energy intensive. So all things figured, it's quite polluting. In the US, we have different blends as well. We have heavy oils, we have light oils. They may have different degrees of sulfur content. So it's not really about what country, because every country can have really good oil and really dirty oil, but it's more about in the U.S. at least, our regime is stable. You know, we have developed processes to keep our workers safe in the oil fields. We have developed technologies that can remove these contaminants from oil, but there is a cost, right? The dirtier the oil, the more expensive it's going to be to get it to the market. But the U.S. Has also has some very clean blends, but again, it varies by country. How about Saudi oil in reference to or as opposed to what we see in Venezuela or Russia? Venezuela, it tends to be very heavy, a lot of sulfur content. And for that reason, now in Venezuela, they also on the other side of the spectrum do have lighter sweet crude oil. So again, it's which type of oil? They do have both. And when you talk about Canada, it's mostly heavy sour. And in the US, we have several varieties too. But if you were to line them up, I mean, the US has some very dirty blends of fuel. Some of it called California Midway Sunset is quite polluting. That comes from California. Whereas in the US, some of the oil from the Gulf Coast tends to be lighter and less contaminated. So it doesn't need as much work to refine. It's less energy intensive as well. So even the US has very clean blends and very dirty blends. And that's what you'll find in an average country. Patrick, I'm maybe going to ask you a question you can't answer, but I'm curious to how much petroleum products are used in so many everyday things that we use that go beyond fuels. Tony, so much. Plastics everywhere around you. I guarantee you, you know, just talking to you, I have plastic in my ear, on my AirPods, my phone is plastic. You know, the tripod that's holding all this equipment up, you know, there's a lot of plastic there. In the household items that you use, you know, makeup, fragrances, trash bags, anything that has any ounce of plastic in it, toothpaste, you'd be amazed, Tony. There's basically nothing around you that does not have the tentacles of some form of oil in it. It's very difficult to escape. wonder how we would live without petroleum and what could replace it. Now, you really wouldn't live without petroleum, even like rubber, the tires on your vehicles, Tony, everything, because it's been so prevalent across the globe that it goes into so many different things. There are so many uses for petroleum. And that's why I say petroleum is incredible, right? Because without petroleum, we'd have not near as much of the flexibility. Plastics have been just an amazing creation. What do you make of the Biden administration's struggles with the petroleum industry here in America, if you will, and how they tend to almost beat up on them? What's your take on that? Well, I think the administration came in swinging a punch that it probably would have been better served backing away from. Their rhetoric has been very strong, and that will have an effect on us years down the road. Not so much now, Tony. We're still in an environment where we're battling back from COVID imbalances, right? We're getting back to normal in many ways. You and I, we feel like everything's back to normal. We don't have masks. We can go everywhere. We have vaccines. But really, when you talk about it, there are still imbalances that you may not see that are still left over from COVID that are working their way out. That now in Russia's war in Ukraine has exacerbated some of those imbalances. So you know, everyone likes to think shutting down the Keystone was significant. Not really. It'd be equivalent, Tony, of you being really upset over the fact that a highway in Lansing that had never been reopened is not going to be built now, right? If you've never driven on the highway, you never saved the 10 minutes of commute time. It really doesn't have much difference to you. Could it have helped in the future? Yes, it could have. But I think that's where the Biden administration has made some missteps is instead of embracing oil and trying to, you know, 
offset unstable regimes like Russia. Think of if the U.S. had more oil production, where we could be. Think of if we embraced oil here in this U.S., how we could have offset Russia, how we could not have to ask Venezuela to produce more oil. I think it's better here. Make your transition to EVs whenever you like. But at the same time, the rest of the world still needs oil. So why not produce it in the United States? Patrick, there's been a lot of talk and back and forth between oil producing companies here in America and the Biden administration on producing more oil on leases and everything that goes into that. In a nutshell, how does that work? And is it difficult or easy now to get to the lease process? And what do you have to do after that? And what's entailed with that process? Well, you know, oil companies are constantly looking for places to drill for new oil because that's the only thing that's state consistent is once you drill, oil wells have a shelf life. You know, there may not be a massive amount of oil where that drill is placed. And so oil companies acquire, they seek permits for various areas. They explore different areas. They drill to see if there's anything there. If there is, they put a well there eventually down the road. I think a lot of what you've been hearing both from the Biden administration and oil companies is probably a little bit of, you know, some truth in the middle. The Biden administration has made it more difficult for oil companies to drill on federal land. At the same time, oil companies would say, oh, the administration hasn't been friendly. Well, to a degree, the Biden administration has given oil companies some concerning statements, right, that in the future, the Biden administration doesn't want us to produce oil, this and that. But the administration can still file for permits on private land. There's nothing restricting them from doing so. So in the instance of, you know, he said, she said, when it comes to Biden in the oil industry, there's probably truth on both sides. And the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. We've got one more segment with Patrick DeHaan from GasBuddy.com. When we come back, we're going to ask to talk a little bit about oil company profits, what's real and what's a myth. And we'll do that next here. I'm Tony Conley. This is Media Business on the Michigan Business Network. LaughQ offers a home equity line of credit because frequent watering of your houseplants may be recommended. Now can we get a new roof? Not so much the rest of the house. Want the best rates for a home equity line of credit? Ask for LaughQ. Stop in today or go to LaughQ.com slash home equity. LaughQ, your credit union for life. Welcome back to Media Business. We're talking with Patrick DeHaan. Patrick, I want to talk a little bit about oil company profits. What's real and what isn't real? If you listen to the Biden administration, if you listen to many in the media, these companies and their boards are making money hand over foot. When you listen to them, they're saying it's not as much as you think. What's truth? Well, they are making as much as they say they are. They disclose their quarterly results publicly to their shareholders, to their investors. They're making a lot of money. But Tony, they also lost a lot of money during COVID. Oil has been a very much a boom-bust cycle. When the going's great, it's great. And when it's not, it's awful. Keep in mind in 2020, right? Oil companies had to let go tens of thousands of workers. They lost tens of billions of dollars collectively. And now they're back to making money. And this is a cycle that's very vicious. It's very challenging being in the oil sector because, like I said, 
when the going's good, it's great. And when it's not, it's awful. But again, kind of the truth is in the middle. Oil companies have been tremendously profitable this year. A lot of that is because of Russia's invasion on Ukraine and the market worrying about having enough product. The other side of the token is Americans are getting back out close to pre-COVID levels. And so there's incredible demand. And the problem is there's just not enough supply to meet that demand. Patrick, how much money did the oil companies lose during COVID? Probably about as much money as they're making on the flip side now. I think some quarters, oil companies collectively were losing 40 to $50 billion, just like they're now making 40 to $50 billion. So, you know, a lot of it evens out. But keep in mind, Tony, that if oil companies make a lot of money, historically, back in 2013, you remember 2011 through 20, really 14, oil prices were very high, 90 to $110 a barrel. And what happened after that era of high oil prices? Well, oil companies were drilling away that entire time because they have a lot of incentive to. What happened in 2015? Well, it all really started in 2014. OPEC finally sniffed out that the U.S. was increasing its oil production significantly. And that brought us to a point where OPEC wanted to try and undermine U.S. production by cutting prices. So OPEC flooded the market. And then 2015 through really 2019, we had very affordable energy. And it was only because of COVID that everything got messed up. And now we're going to start that cycle again, where there's probably a period of a lot of investment in oil companies that will translate to more supply. And in a few years, things will be more affordable again. Patrick, is it good or bad for us here in America as citizens, for us as consumers, when we're self-sufficient, when we're actually producing more than we need? Well, it's certainly very good, especially when the U.S. and the instance of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, if we produce enough, we could potentially produce more for Europe. And then Russia would be less relevant, right? Instead of the European Union struggling to find other oil, the U.S. and, say, Canada could say, hey, we have production for you if you need it. The problem is very few countries have additional capacity just ready to go at a moment's notice. Some of that is with OPEC, and even OPEC was running short on spare capacity this year. Because of the resurgence after COVID, that is so much pent up demand that there really was just no spare capacity. Patrick, you recently tweeted that Governor Gavin Newsom of California unveiled an outline of his plan to put a cap on oil refinery profits in California. He's asking lawmakers to approve in hopes of reducing spikes on gasoline prices. Will that work? What's your take on that? Well, Tony, when politicians arbitrarily decide to tell oil companies that they can't make as much money, generally that will mean that oil companies aren't investing as much money either. In maintenance, in increasing production, in facilities, they're not going to build as many new facilities. And inherently, Tony, what happens if oil companies don't invest and don't maintain their infrastructure? Eventually, it starts to crumble. It becomes less reliable. Capacity goes down. And who's that going to hurt the most? Well, it's going to hurt consumers in the long run. It probably won't hurt in a year or two. But Tony, after a period of government just chiseling away those profits, something's going to give. And oil companies will eventually just not have as as much money to put into investment and maintenance. And that's going to mean down the road, less gasoline, less diesel, less jet fuel. And that's going to hurt consumers. Boy, it's really tough to be in California if you're an oil producer or you produce anything that needs a lot of oil because of taxes and regulations there. Yeah, absolutely. It's the most stringent environment. And Tony, that's part of the reason why California is home to amongst the highest gas prices in the country is because of that layer of bureaucracy and going after oil companies. There's less competition because companies have left California and that's why gas prices are high. California has ridiculous stringent requirements for gasoline. That's why the governor 
acted to waive those requirements this September when refineries were having issues. Carbon management program, California has essentially somewhat like a carbon tax, but it's not exactly a carbon tax. They also have the highest gasoline tax in the country, you know, over a dollar a gallon in taxes and fees in California. And they wonder why their prices are so high. It's amazing. Final question for you, Patrick. You mentioned thousands of jobs were lost for oil producers and those companies. How many of those jobs did we get back? Uh, It's hard to tell, Tony. I don't have a count in front of me. I would guess it's probably somewhere in the ballpark of a third to maybe half of them. But again, so many labor challenges happening right now in our economy that it's probably very difficult. Though, oil company jobs tend to be well-paying, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the people are willing to work there again. I mean, oil companies go through boom and bust cycles that can be very hard on Americans who need reliable income. So the oil industry is making a comeback though, Tony. We are back at 12.1 million barrels a day of US oil production. That was as low as 10 million barrels during COVID. It's not quite as high as the 13.3 million barrels a day that we produced before COVID. So we're still working our way back from the COVID pandemic. We've been talking with Patrick DeHaan from GasBuddy.com. Follow him on Twitter if you want to know what's going on with energy, with petroleum. He's the guy to follow. Patrick, I recently learned you're a bourbon connoisseur. We're going to have to get together for a Buffalo Trace or Yellowstone or Knob Creek or something and break bread sometime. That sounds good, Tony. I have all three of those in the cabinet. Your pet. (laughs) All right. Take care, Patrick. We appreciate you. I'm Tony Conley. You've been listening to Media Business on the Michigan Business Network.